Welcome to People of Eternia. I'm Tom Romero. It's amazing how certain discoveries as little children can affect us. The things we experience at a young age can sometimes set the course for our whole entire life. The very first time I discovered a comic book was when I received my first He-Man action figure. I looked at the mini book he came with and was intrigued by the pictures. Then something incredible happened. The weird but familiar looking words I saw on the page my mother interpreted for me. It was at that moment I began to learn how to read. My guest today had an experience at a young age when he read his first He-Man comic. The comic ignited his passion for other comic books, and at age 10 he decided that he was going to dedicate his life to the art form. He is not only a talented illustrator, but also a gifted writer and editor. He has created some of the best comics in the world, including his own Hack Slash, Revival, and my favorite, Colt Noble and the Megalords. He is so successful at his craft that he has written stories for He-Man for both Mattel and DC. And to think, all this stemmed from reading a He-Man comic. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tim Seeley. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, sir. How are you handling COVID right now? Lots of, yeah, keeping busy in retail therapy, basically. Uh, just, I took on as many jobs as I possibly could, so I don't have to think about reality. And then I've, I've definitely spent way too much time on eBay picking up, uh, I don't know, Secret Wars figures and Master Universe knockoffs and, and you know, and then some of those, uh, the new Origins figures, because I'm I'm not going to Walmart uh, anytime soon, so I've been picking stuff up. Yeah, lots of retail therapy. Yeah, I'm on the same boat trying to get the best deals. All right, let's get into it. Did you always want to be in comics? Yeah. I mean, when I was uh, in second grade, we had to do like a career report, and mine was about comics. And then in sixth grade, I had to do a, another sort of version of that, and I wrote to Marvel Comics. I have those letters. I, you know, I sent them samples. The editor at the time, Mark Powers, sent me back this really detailed sort of uh, you know guide to being in comics. Then I later worked with Mark at Devil's Due. So all these things come <laughs> together, but. Um, yeah, when I was five, my um, my mom uh, got me a He-Man figure. Uh, it was the He-Man and Battle Cat sort of box set, and uh, it came with a mini comic. It was actually like the more of the storybook version, but you know, the one of the very early ones. And then every time we got one of those figures, it came with comics, and I kind of got obsessed with comics off that. And I learned to read via same as you. I learned to read via um, comics. So Spider-Man and and Hulk and uh, Batman and Superman were very early sort of taught me how to read before Dick and Jane did. Yes, those mini comics were my gateway to reading, but I didn't get into mainstream comics till later on. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up outside of Wausau, Wisconsin, in a town called Ringle. It's actually the setting of Revival. Uh, I used my hometown as a, uh, as a setting, because then, then I didn't have to do any research, because I grew up there. Yeah, right, what you know. But uh, yeah, small town. The town I grew up in was like 1,400 people, but it was near Wausau, which was like 30. And uh, yeah, it was just like a, you know, small, a very rural kind of farm town. You know, we used to, I didn't grow up on a farm, but like, you know, quarter of a mile away was cows and horses and, and stuff like that. So, and for us, you know, we were just country kids, like <laughs> trying to keep ourselves busy. I had two brothers. And so we would, uh, you know, like action figures was huge for us. And so was comics. Like that was our escape because, you know, especially in the winter, there was nothing to do and nowhere to go. We lived inside our, our shared imaginations, basically. So what other figures did you collect? Did you mostly collect He-Man? Well, we had a lot. Um, I had, you know, because I had two brothers, we kind of shared our figure line. And we were kind of canny enough to split them up, what we each were into, so that 
we could kind of cover all the bases. Um, so I was mostly a He-Man fan. My brother Steve was sort of super into the knockoff figures and any of this sort of weird stuff. My brother Brad did G.I. Joe. So between the three of us, we kind of got everything. But I had like, you know, mostly I was into He-Man, but I was also into Thundercats, Sectors. I was a huge fan of Sectors. Power Lords, loved Power Lords. Anytime I could find a Power Lord, I was always begging for Power Lords. And then we all three of us did Battle Beasts. And we were all super big fans of Battle Beasts. And then I had, you know, I was into Transformers when I could find them because I loved the Marvel comic at the time. I was actually more into the comic, I think, than I was the figures. But also they were slightly more expensive. In my experience when I was a kid, Transformers were like $15 and He-Man guys were like $4.95. So like... <laughs> oh, yeah. Guys. But I had a few, you know, I was super into just any sort of genre kind of stuff. Like my parents were pretty middle class, lower middle class, I would say. But my my aunt uh, and my grandma would always buy us figures because they didn't have you know kids at home. So so they would buy us like the expensive. And then my my mom, when we would run to the grocery store, would get us like the weird, you know, IGA knockoff He-Man figures. So like <laughs> you know, Fantasy World and all that sort of stuff. That was our favorite stuff to play with because you could just make up the story. So we were big into that stuff too. Like looking back on it, we were kind of spoiled as far as I go. Not by my parents so much, but definitely by grandma and definitely by Aunt Darlene, who uh, who supplied us with so many action figures. So they helped you out in your writing career. Now, besides your grandmother and aunt, who are your comic influences? I mean, at a certain point, just about everybody. I think the biggest ones are Kirby, Jack Kirby for sure. I mean, you know, because I draw and, and write. So I guess it's like Jack Kirby, John Byrne, uh, Grant Morrison for sure. And then just, I think artistically, I sort of, all the image guys, you know, that I grew up, I was 13 when, when image was announced. So, you know, Rob and Todd and Jim and all those uh, creators, like definitely a big influence on me, even if sometimes I don't want them to be, uh, they are. So, uh, but yeah, that kind of era of stuff, I think the most. And then I think when I got, when I was a teenager, I think the James O'Barr, when I, when I discovered the crow, when I was like 15, you know, that just like changed my whole brain. And then I kind of lived in the indie comics world for uh, up until my 20s. O'Barr, and then also, you know, any of that sort of gothy kind of horror stuff uh, was big for me when I was a teenager. You also started with Rob Liefeld. I started on G.I. Joe. That was actually my first sort of mainstream gig. And that was for Devil's Due? Yeah, for Devil's Due, which, you know, I was obviously familiar with G.I. Joe. My brother had grown up collecting them and I'd read the comics. So, you know, having your first big, big gig be that is not a bad deal. But it was just such a pain in the ass because you had to draw these vehicles and everybody would call you out if you didn't get them right. So, but it was, it was, it was, it was a good first gig. And I, I learned a lot about publishing, you know, because I was at a company. I wasn't like home by myself. I was working on staff, you know, dealing with licensors. My part of my job was calling Hasbro to make sure that we did what they wanted and we didn't put too much sex or too much violence <laughs> or something. G.I. Joe has sex. So you were a fan of the toys? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a few. I wasn't a big collector of GI Joe. I always, and, but my stuff, the, my favorite GI Joe stuff was the stuff that fan, most fans didn't like. So my favorite GI Joe thing is the movie, the animated movie. Yeah, I love the movie. You know, like Cobra Law and all that sort of. Shit. So like the military stuff, eh? Like I've never been a super big guns and sort of guy. You know, just never was. But I did, I did love the Marvel comic. I was reading it when I was in like 10 or 11. Uh, I was a big fan of it. But the thing that when I saw it, when I saw the G.I. Joe animated movie and, you know, sort of this H.P. Lovecraft thing, which I didn't know at the time, I was I was super in love with. It. That was my favorite thing. So you also worked at DreamWorks. What have we seen that you've done? She-Ra, the cartoon, the Netflix cartoon. My brother and I sort of wrote 
the brand Bible for them. So before they brought Noel on and, and uh, the creators that they worked with, they basically sort of wanted a survey of Shira, basically, and then, you know, like all the variations of the characters and their personalities and the, the sort of world, and then how it connected to Master of the Universe because they didn't have the rights to Master of the Universe. So we wrote this whole Bible and like, here's the things that overlap and here's the things that you can't use. And so, you know, it took us like, I don't know, three, four months, I think, of working on Shira. My brother watched every episode of Shira and then we read all the kids' books and everything, wrote them this big document, and then we gave that to uh, DreamWorks and Noelle so she could develop the, the show. So we didn't get to like write any episodes or anything, but um, you know, our basic job was just sort of to be experts on Chira, which we had gotten that job because we did the Art of the Masters of the Universe book. So we kind of we know our stuff. Like there's if there's one thing I know front and backwards, it's Masters of the Universe, pretty much. So you must be the only writer that's written for both Mattel and DC. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think back in the you know when they the old comics they were made by DC, the old mini comics. DC made them at a certain point. So like, you know, Paul Cooperberg and, and, uh, and those guys, when they were writing those books, they were kind of doing the crossover of, you know, because DC was essentially producing those comics for them. Right. But as far as the Marvel, the, uh, the modern age of it, yeah, I think probably or Dan Abnett did any of the mini comics, but I only did, I did like three of them. I did that series that came out with the 30th anniversary, which it was like one of the hardest gigs I've ever had because they had so much stuff and there was only, it was only like eight page comics, I think, right. They were pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Like getting everything in there was, was a lot of work. Were there any big differences from the Bible to the final show? Like something that they cut that you wrote or changed? No. I mean, cause mostly they just used ours as sort of the skeleton, you know, and we made suggestions like one of, you know, one of our sort of chapters and it was just, we think this would work. You know, here's some recommendations, but they really, they did their own thing and they should have, you know, I mean, it, Noel was kind of show running and doing a lot of designs. And uh, so, you know, they, they used our stuff as a basis. So it wasn't, I mean, there was nothing really to change so much because we were sort of summarizing the distilled version of, of what She-Ra was, you know, that the idea of it being this world that's, it's different from Master Universe because the Master Universe one is sort of about someone trying to take over, you know, Skeletor is trying to take over. And we were kind of distilling it as like, she was about insurrection, right? It's about the, it's a rebellion and the princesses represent, you know, these sort of, they're insurrectionists against the horde rule. And so we kind of approached it in, in a, you know, that way. It's more of a, the world has already been conquered and now you're trying to free yourself. And, you know, that was our kind of pitch to them. And I think they, they use that, which has always been part of Shira anyway. Now, how did you get your start with He-Man? Well, I mean, I was always kind of like a public Masters Universe fan, you know, like, and I just, you know, kind of the thing was I was a kid, I was a huge He-Man fan. And then Obviously, I went to college and I got distracted by alcohol and ladies and everything else. But in my early 20s, when I first kind of started working at Devil's Due, I decided I needed a hobby that wasn't comics because I was working in comics. And my brother had just moved to Chicago. And so we were kind of like, you know, we would go on weekends to toy shows and we would just do stuff like that. And I was like, I'm going to collect all the Master Universe figures again. Just something to have a hobby that wasn't my jobby. And then, of course, I made it my jobby because I worked that way. But, you know, it was just. I was very public about it, you know, on social media, I'd be like, Hey, I'll trade a sketch for real blast or whatever, just for fun, you know? And then I was pretty good friends with the people at dark horse and they got the rights to do these art books. And they emailed me like, we don't really know who else we can ask. It's, it's kind of gotta be <laughs> you. You talk about this all the time. And so that, you know, kind of started that all off. But I was, you know, I was working at DC when they were putting out the master universe comics the first time around. And I kind of never pushed to, write those books or doing pitched for it or anything partially because again, I didn't want to turn my hobby into a jobby, but 
after I did the Dark Horse book and after we worked on the uh, Shiro stuff, I was like, I kind of have a, a feeling to do more of this. So that's when I uh, asked Mattel, uh, hey, if you guys do another comic series, I would love to be involved. And they came to me with the um, Injustice versus Master of the Universe series. How did you start Colt Noble and the Megalords? Oh, yeah, I almost forgot about that. But it had a little bit to do with getting the work on Master of the Universe. I had all these sort of characters that, you know, in my head that were like sort of Master of the Universe-esque knockoffs. I love their names and they're so goofy. And I just sort of had this idea that if you come, if you took the basic structure of Master of the Universe, that you could do a teen sex comedy, you know, right? It's basically big, right? Like the kid, the, teen, the horny teenager, like all of a sudden is an adult and now can like buy alcohol and go to strip clubs and everything. But he's also got this responsibility. So it was just kind of like a parody, I guess. I just I just wanted to do it. It was one of those things like, I don't do this anymore. But when I was, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, like, I just make shit. I didn't care. I, I didn't think about who would buy it or I just I just made it. And that was one of those books where I just like, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to make, make this comic. And so it was just, you know, like a just a fun one-off. I had a really good relationship with Image. I guess I still have a really good relationship with Image. So I could just make crazy shit and be like, hey, I'm going to put this out. Is that cool? And they'd be like, yeah, that sounds good. And so we just made it to do it, I guess. It's so low, right? You know, it made its money back. It didn't make, it wasn't something I could live off like uh, Hackslash Revival, but, you know, it was mildly su- successful. But it did sort of help me get those Master Universe jobs too, because it was the thing that, you know, very publicly was like, oh, I love He-Man shit, so here's my He-Man thing. And it's got some Thundercats in it and some Voltron and everything else. It's a great humorous book. Yeah, it's, it's goofy and fun. And, uh, you know, it was just something, you know, just to, while I was sitting in my apartment during January and February, it was just like being a kid again. It's like, it's, it's winter in Chicago, and I'm going to make something for the hell of it. And I worked with uh, Mike Dimayuga, who was a guy I'd met um, at a convention, and he just said, you know, I'll draw something for you, whatever you want. And so I, I started sending him pages, and we collaborated on it. We had a good old time. Yeah, it was just like a, you know, when you work in comics, you know, sometimes you forget to have fun in comics because you're spending all the time on the politics and the insane work schedules and, and all, and the, you know, getting sort of approvals. And this was my chance to just be like, I don't give a shit. I'm just going to make something fun and it's going to have boobs and butts and it's going to be silly and it's going to have jokes. And, you know, so yeah, it was just an excuse, I guess. I, I don't know if I ever really needed one, but I gave myself a excuse to make something fun. Actually, I'm glad you did. Will we ever see Colt Noble again? I, you know, I should do something with it. I'm just so busy lately. As I've gotten older, I'm less, I'm more risk adverse and less likely to take a chance on something crazy, which is a bummer. But, you know, I've got a kid and I've got a house now. And, you know, so like it took like six months to make my money back on Cold Noble, which, you know, not a big deal, really, if you're a single guy whose biggest expense is beer. But <laughs> now that I'm, you know, older and more responsible, I have to kind of gauge the stuff I do, but I would love to do something. I actually had an idea of doing, it was going to be sort of like, I had this whole idea that like basically the second story flashes forward, you know, like 40 years. And now basically it's the opposite, right? He, he's an old guy who turns into a young guy. So it's, it's, he's got this whole new set of responsibilities because it used to be, he would like, you know, he's a teenager and he got to go be an adult and it was cool. And now he's an old guy and he's cranky and he's balding. And now he gets to turn into a young guy and, you know, have all this sort of freedom that he didn't have before. So that was kind of the pitch I was going to go with it. I, I hope I get around to it one of these days. Who is He-Man's voice to you? When you write He-Man, who do you hear? I mean, my, my, my take on He-Man is that he's just, like, the, he's the best guy. He's the most good person, right? He's distilled of all these sort of 
you know, pulp characters like from Flash Gordon to, you know, to Tarzan to Buck Rogers. And then what's going on here? Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. I'm so sorry about that. Typical first. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Three, two, one. So when you write He-Man, whose voice do you hear? And I don't mean like John Irwin. I mean, who who is He-Man to you? I mean, my take on He-Man is, is just that he's like the distilled sort of postmodern version of all the sort of pop, pulp heroes. So he's basically you take Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and Tarzan and Conan and like you sort of distill them all into like this prototype hero. And he always, you know, the, the interesting thing about the character is one part of him is a prince and who's spoiled and who's irresponsible. And then he has to become this guy who is super responsible and always does the right thing and is sort of a role model for everyone. I, tr- I think of him like, you know, he's Superman, right? He doesn't have doubts. He, he just does what he needs to be do. He's, he's always good. He always does the best thing. He's never selfish. And then when he's Adam, he has to be, he's human, right? Then he makes bad choices and he can be selfish. And he's always trying to be the guy that he becomes. It's a very Captain Marvel sort of scenario, kind of like Captain Marvel plus Spider-Man is sort of the, I mean, Captain Marvel Shazam version, but it's sort of that those combination, right? It's like Spider-Man turns into Superman is, is basically the, the template of kind of the, you know, this, this change from the, those two heroes. So that's kind of always think of him. I think it, there's, there's this tendency to sort of want to write heroes that are flawed. And like, for some reason, people, I think, there's a whole sort of generation that's more attracted to like crappy people. And there's a lot, I mean, there's a whole voting group that is attracted to terrible people. So I think it can be sort of passe to do a hero, a good person. But I think that's what you have to, He-Man has to be that guy. He has to be, you know, in my Injustice story, Master Universe, my thing was if Superman is not a good guy, then He-Man has to rise to that and be the Superman of this sort of universe. Especially in your writing, because I've noticed, like like you said, He-Man really isn't flawed. He's not perfect, but he is the hero we need him to be. Is there a character that you've always wanted to write, but haven't had the opportunity to explore? Yeah, I mean, there's always... I guess if, if I'm being honest, like, I kind of... When I started working comics, like, the, the list I had in my head of all the characters I want to work on, I've actually done it, uh, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only one I haven't really gotten to work on like I've drawn, but I haven't written is Spider-Man. And then the other, the only other one is, is She-Hulk pretty much. So those are like the only two I haven't gotten to do. Um, and then everybody else I've kind of covered, but I would really like to do more with some of the characters I've worked on. So I would, I would really like to do, I hardly got to write Tila at all in both of the series I did. Um, and she's one of my favorite characters. Uh, so I would love to have done more with her. That would have been, uh, something I would have had a lot of fun with, and I've got ideas for what I would like to do with her. But yeah, I mean, you know, everything else I kind of at least got to mess with. I mean, I got to write Optimus Prime once, and I got to write, you know, I've got to write Superman like a bunch of times, and I've gotten to write Batman a whole bunch of times, Wonder Woman, and surprisingly, yeah, your, your run on Nightwing was incredible. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I, you know, I loved Robin when I was a kid, so I got to work on Robin, but it was Nightwing. And then Deadpool and Harley are both characters I really wanted to work on. I've, I've had long experiences with both those characters so i'm lucky because i've kind of stumbled into <laughs> most of the characters that i really like i would love to do more with sort of the pulp characters especially like the pulp horror characters like dracula and, you know that kind of stuff but you know i love tarzan i got to write tarzan on the planet of the apes 
I guess I love Lost Boys. I got to write a sequel to Lost Boys. So I kind of feel like I'm really lucky and I work so much that I've kind of covered a lot of my bases. And the only one really left is Spider-Man, I guess, and, and She-Hulk. I was reading He-Man and Masters of the Multiverse, specifically the scene with New Adventures He-Man. With Dan Fragg's pencils, you wrote him so well, it occurred to me that I would love to see a New Adventures miniseries written by you. Me too. So when I was a kid, I missed that cartoon completely. I never saw it as a kid. I We had some of the figures, and we only really liked the monsters, the mutants. We didn't really like the heroes very much because they didn't look like He-Man characters, but the mutants were cool. So going into that series when I was talking to Mattel, and they said, hey, you can set this in any of the sort of versions of Mass Universe. And I, I said, I really would like to do new adventures. And they were like, oh, oh, okay, sure. And I, didn't, I don't know why I said that because I, I didn't have any affection for it. And then I watched all the cartoons and I read all the mini comics. And I was like, there's so much potential in this thing. Um, yeah. You know, the cartoon is is well done. The animation is not as good as the filmation series. The designs are not as good. But the idea is great. You know, this sort of savior, you know, coming from the stars. And then he has to sort of undertake this secret identity. It's Superman, right? You know, but it also has like crazy space mutants and, you know, all this other kind of cool visual stuff. And just like that, basically, the Castle Grayskull as a ship is cool as hell. Like, I... You know, I, I kept, I, and I, it was sort of implied in the mini comics that, you know, the ghost, of, the spirit of Grayskull was trapped in the starship. And I was like, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I had, I loved it. I, I, I really would like to do more with it. You know, I don't, again, it wasn't a super successful iteration of Master Universe. So I don't know that Mattel wants to go back to that line. But I, to me, it, it totally would benefit from like a miniseries, you know, like instead of just. Because by the end of that one-off, I was like, oh, I have so much stuff I want to do with this. Especially that version of Skeletor, like, that, you know, he's sort of poisoned by technology, that he's got all these this sort of, like, literal techno virus going through his body that's kind of killing him. I, man, I thought that set was cool as hell. It's a very underused concept. Even during the classics era of the mini-comics, you didn't see much of the N.A. characters at all. Yeah, yeah, they didn't do a lot with it. How did He-Man in the multiverse come about? Did you pitch it? Did they come to you? It was like a weird combo of both, which was after the um, the Injustice Master Universe one, I kind of pitched them on this thing I want to do as a sequel to Master of the, uh, or Injustice Master Universe, and it it had um, anti He Man in it as the as the villain in that in that version of the story, and you kind of see sort of my thinking on it at the end of Injustice Master Universe, where you see the Horde core, which was like you know the basically the Black Lanterns plus Horde heck. And so I was going to do that as I pitched it basically as like, you know, the Hordak you know, uses this sort of dark energy and you find out it's from the, the anti-Eternia and then they end up summoning anti-He-Man and he goes on this like, you know, sort of massacre across the, the universe trying to steal all the power from people who have the sword. And they like that idea that, like, yeah, that we really like to do something with, with anti-Eternia because it makes great alternate figures. And then they came back you know, a few months later and said, what if we did it sort of like, you know, Spider-Verse of Masters of the Universe? And they said, you could use anti-Eternia He-Man as the bad guy. So then I came back with a pitch for that. I sent it to Mattel. And then Rob and uh, Melanie, I believe, uh, went through and they kind of said, well, you should use this character instead and you should use these. And hey, you can use these. We have rights to the 2000X era stuff. So they helped me reformat the pitch. And we ended up with something that was kind of a combination of all kinds of ideas into one new thing. And I think the name Masters of the Multiverse, we had various different names. One was 
uh, Master of the Universes, and then we had Master of the Multiverse and all this other, and we ended up settling on Masters of the Multiverse. The theme to Masters of the Multiverse is anyone can have the power. Do you feel that dilutes He-Man in any way, or does it add to the overall character? Oh, no, it doesn't dilute him at all. I mean, that was always sort of inherent in the brand, right? I mean, I think the story was sort of about, you know, I have the power, right? It was like little kids were sort of always felt powerless, you know, that, that, that they had to do everything that the world told them to do, and they didn't have any sort of their own ability to make decisions. And that was kind of the appeal of the toy line, I think, to some degree. So I think it, it does the opposite of dilute it. It sort of makes it more accessible, I think, from a sort of diversity standpoint the idea is sort of that it, it could be that all kinds of kids could see themselves and it i think is important you know and obviously they're on an alien world and there's no african americans and there's no you know latin americans whatever we made more people of you know, brown skin tones so that people could see themselves in these in these heroes which i think now especially uh, is really important when you write a mini comic as opposed to a dc comic do you change the character in any way the same voice. I think you know. It's, there's a, there's like minor, tiny, tiny little things about like the age range, right? So like, you know, when you're doing one of the DC comics, I think the assumption is it's probably 13 years old and up. Probably when you're doing the mini comics, you're sort of saying, well, it could be like eight or nine up. So you may slightly adjust the way they talk, but in general, I mean, I I think the characters are really well defined in such a way that you know it's my take on them, but to, in my brain that they're very consistent across all this stuff. Like, you know, Man at Arms, what, no matter what version he is, is essentially always going to be like the grizzled soldier with the heart of gold, you know, who's seen too much. And Tila's always going to be the sort of terse, but, you know, sort of frustrated and, and sort of lonely captain of the guard. And I think if you distill characters down to like two or three sentences and follow that, then you, know, you get a consistent version that's consistent to yourself. And obviously... The thing about these things, they're plastic toys. And you, when you played with them as a kid, you had your version of what that person was like. But you kind of followed a template, right? I mean, you know, and, and, and I think that's kind of the universality of that of that line is, is that it allows you to put yourself in it. What's it like to write for Mattel? Did they give you free access or did they give you a lot of notes? My relationship with Mattel is such that I don't, I'm not trying to like get away with anything. But I, I also know what they want. And they're real cool with me about just sort of like, we talk about the idea beforehand. So, you know, like for Master of the Multiverse, I put together a big pitch document of everything I want to do. And they said, let's not do that. Let's do this instead. And so I knew what they wanted, you know, and I, they, they help a lot. Rob is a good, a good writer and he was able to come in and Melly's a good writer. And they were able to come in and they, they give me ideas, you know, things that they want. They give me a reason. You know, the, the hard part when you're doing any sort of license thing, someone will say, well, we want you to do this. And, and it'll be like, well, what's the story reason for that? But Mattel never does that. It's always like, well, here's the story reason for what we want you to do. So, I mean, I, we never had any major corrections. I don't think we had any on Master of the Multiverse. We had a few on Injustice because we were trying to line it up with the video game as well. And we were using a sort of like the crossover character version of He-Man. It was the same one that was in the Thundercats crossover, which isn't the same sort of version of He-Man that's in the DC comic. Not really. So there's a little bit of stuff to line up there, but you know, as far as uh, Master of the Multiverse, we were pretty much good to go the whole time. They were down for all the crazy ideas. When we showed the uh, He Force at the end, they were 100% behind it, which was I was super surprised by. It, but I was like, are you sure I, you, that you want me to do a Battle Cat Man and, a, and you know, a character named Valiant Tina? And they, yeah, we love it. So uh, that worked out really good. You've written the art 
of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe with your brother Steve. Was there anything in the book that got omitted? No. I mean, that's the thing with that book is everything we found, we put in there. The only thing we weren't able to do was some of the movie stuff, some of the uh, canon movie stuff. Partially just because they were working on the time at the time on a book of Bill Stout's designs uh, separate to that. So, you know, we had some like Mobius's stuff and everything, but Bill's stuff was Bill stuff. And we'll get that book at some point, I think. But the way we did the book was that Mattel had basically went through their archives and they they scanned like every piece of art they had and they sent it to us. And then my brother and I went online and we hunted down a bunch of other stuff. And we said, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And they put out calls for it and they found stuff. So, you know, not only did we put in everything they had, uh, they helped us put in a bunch of stuff we had. You know, there was like we had found some of this Earl Norum art that, you know, was kind of relatively unseen. Some of the original designs and stuff we were able to find and then tell Mattel that they should see if they can catch up with it or the William George paintings and, uh, and some of that stuff. So they were really helpful and they found most of the things that we asked for. I don't think there was anything that we didn't find. One of the toughest parts about it is the animation stuff, but we brought in, you know, an expert who knew that stuff better than we did. And we got the cool little, you know, slide in animation cells and stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, there's nothing left out of that book. I don't think, uh, in fact, the original page count was 130 something. And the final page count was like 300 something. Where would you like to see him in, in the future? I mean, I would love a a kid focused He-Man cartoon, you know, I think we're getting that. Seems like the Netflix version of that is going to be that. Something to, you know, work in the same way that that She-Ra cartoon that they did, the Netflix She-Ra cartoon, which I think is one of the best things ever made for Master of the Universe. Writing is incredible. The designs are incredible. It's very relevant, very appealing. Every, you know, my niece, when she saw it, was blown away. And I was so glad that she had that. So I'd like to have that for He-Man. I'd like my nephew to have, I mean, he watched She-Ra too, but um, I would like him to have that, a version of that, you know, you know, I, I think we're getting all this stuff. I, I would like more comics. I mean, I you know, we'll probably get a movie. I'm, I'm not like a huge generally fan of, of the movies that come out of 80s stuff usually. I mean, they're, I don't know, G.I. Joe is not very good and Transformers was not good. So I hope they get a movie. I, I, I'm not like holding my breath for it to be awesome or anything, just based on what we've got from the other brands. But, but yeah, I mean, the cartoons are always high quality. We're getting really cool figures right now that look, you know, like the old ones, but they're a little more flexible. Those Origins figures are amazing. The Masters of the uh, WWE Universe is some of the coolest toys I've ever seen. That I have a Mr. T He-Man figure is one of the greatest things on earth. Uh, it's it, I love it so much. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think we're getting cool stuff. I w- I would love to do you know more like sort of the crossover stuff is so much fun. So you know, Masters of the Universe crossover with just about anything would be cool. Transformers or although that might be tough, the two toy companies probably, but. And I just love, you know, just more fun stuff, I think, is it would be great. You know, the I think, especially now when everything sucks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having more fun He-Man escapist stuff for kids first, and then for old guys like me second, uh, I think it would be great. So you do have more He-Man stories in you? Oh, yeah. I have a sequel to Master of the Multiverse in my head that I really want to do. And I would love, love to do Barbarian He-Man. I would love to do the you know, the sort of mini comics version that we got to do the fourth issue of multiverse uh, round, you know, the sort of uh, savage He-Man, I guess he's called. I, I have a cool art. Yeah. yeah. I, I would love to do that where he's, you know, from this sort of barbarian tribe and Skeletor is a weird invader from 
you know, another dimension. I would love to do that. That's my big goal. And when I did it uh, in Master Multiverse, it was like the most fun I'd had uh, ever. So love to do more. Interesting. I hope we get it. And obviously new adventures if I could do that too. Uh, That one seems less likely. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. It's so weird though. I mean, you wrote that character so well and, and he was only on like two pages, if that. Yeah. <laughs> I would definitely love to see more uh, new adventurous stuff. So what's next for Tim Seeley? Well, a lot of stuff. I'm uh, I teach start teaching in uh, a week and a half and then um I'm writing I so during the shutdown I got lucky because I had decided that 2020 was going to be the year I did some um, original graphic novels. So I did two of those and I'm finishing them up now and that kept me employed and they were Crayron, which is really helpful. Did both of those and then they'll be coming out. I'm also doing cool thing for DC, a really cool thing for DC that I think people will be surprised by. And then I'll continue to do Vampire the Masquerade comic and Money Shot. Those will uh, keep marching on. I've got two Crayron pitches. I'm uh, working on right now that I'm very happy with, and I you basically I, I got so lonely during this lockdown that I made comics as collaboration pieces, so that excuses to talk to my friends and uh, us not having anything to do. We made some cool because all we would just talk about these comics. And I also wrote a movie, so we'll talk about that eventually when it gets released. And uh, yeah, man, I'm just always doing stuff. I'm trying to keep myself busy so I I don't think about the world. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. I know you really can't talk about it, but is it something your creator owned the movie or it's just something different? Yeah, you'll it's not a it's a yeah, it's creator owned as far as movies go. Um it's an original concept, I guess, would be the Oh, okay. Um and I co wrote it with a buddy of mine again, just nothing to do. Let's make something so we have an excuse. So hopefully that'll get re- announced at least pretty soon. And uh yeah, just I keep making stuff. Hopefully people keep buying it. That's that's the only thing I can I can hope for. Yes, all your work is brilliant. Hack slash money shot, especially your He-Man work. It's all great. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for all your contributions to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And in the future, you're more than welcome to come back if there's something you'd like to promote. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks once again to Tim Seeley, and thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to another episode of People of Eternia. People of Eternia podcast is a Toylines podcast production. Intro and outro music is by Brian Salvatore. Cover art is by Tom Derenick and Andrew Kramer. Special thanks to Scott Knightlick and Spectre Creative. Email us at peopleofeternia.com. Follow us on social media at People of Eternia. Voiceover outro is provided by me, Hamani. Come back next time for another powerful episode of People of Eternia.